Blog Talk Radio. to raise the question, what is it that we're going to do independent of white people? It is very, very hard for us to envision a world without white people. But we cannot create our own agenda until and unless we can define an agenda that can envision a world in which they don't exist. Now we have to wake up and come back to the reality of them. But certainly when we talk about a future, we have to talk about a future from our point of view and our historical understanding of reality. Hetipu, Yimhotep, Ndamanash, Nangadef, Majwo, Salbona, Habargani, Anisogoma, Peace, War, Pan-African Greetings Family. This is your host, Kamal Makasi Tahuchi, and you have entered Africa's reascension. We shall start off our show as usual with an apae or a libation, which deliberately calls upon the energies of our African God, our African spirit forces, and the forces of those yet born to guide and bless this endeavor. I go, I go, I go. Oh, the Makama, and Yame, and Yame Wah, the Shreedy Apollo, Mawulisa, Olobro, Amen Ra, Bejiensa, Asafia, Abasu, 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 Not a surgery, not a Siketua, not a bad coffee, not a Tigurai, not a Tigurai, not a Tigurai, not a Sankofa, not a Kumi, Quaku Free, Akonadia Bena, Asupontin, Ochuangwan, Tamensan, Shango, Mochuba, Oya, Mochuba, Oshu, Mochuba, Chahuti, Asar, Hekmet, Nanonon and Samanfo, and Samanfo Abasu of Fowl, Abasu, Abasu of Fowl. Yeshirmo Yansa, Yeshirmo Ahuden, Yeshirmo Nchera, Yeshirmo Sikapa, Yeshirmo Nkwaso, Yeshirmo Nkwaso, Abbasu Afal, Yei Nkwaso. As to Odomakamad, Nyame, Nyame Wa, Treaty of Pong, Mawalisa, Olavrun, Amin Ra, use me and this form to transmit clear African-centered theoretical and practical information so those listening can use it for their own transformation back into the sovereign Africans they once were. And they speak directly to their sunso, their spirit, their ori, spiritual head, and their ab, the heart, which for Kemet, now known as Egypt, was the seat of intelligence, not the brain, but the ab, the heart. And may these words awaken the long Dormant and asleep African inside of them. Nadasipa, Nadasibio, Mo Piafo, Mo Nekasa, 
Madassi, no, no, no. Yo, Madassi, no, no, no. The Sapai, or libation, is an ancient practice that is still done to this nanosecond in all rural and traditional areas throughout the continent. Past, present, and future become one as those of tomorrow. Look upon what we are doing now and drawing strength from and doing the rituals of yesterday. Again, welcome everyone to Africa's Reascension. This is Kamal McCasey Tahuti. Um, our call in number, please don't forget, 760 454 1111. 760 454 Other good blog talk shows, um, please check out Pan Africanism or Parish by Taj Malik. Pan-Africanism or Parish by Taj Malik, usually on Thursdays um, around 10 p.m., but again, type one of those in to Blog Talk search engines. You'll be taken to a home page, the show page, and then you get to um, click, then click the follow button so you can... Uh, know when he's going to come on so you can follow him and stay um, abreast of his very, 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 very good shows. Another excellent show, Queen Ifama, I-F-A-M-A, The Truth Terrorist, on Sundays at 7 Eastern, right before this show, Africa's Reascension. Raw, uncut, butt-naked, truth, uh, from a sister Again, Queen Ifama I-F-A-M-A The Truth Terrace Sundays at 7 right here on Blog Talk And then you also have um, Sister Ia Ajua I-Y-A A-D-J-U-A And her magnificent show Wahimi Nesu Cultural Rebirth Connections On Wednesdays usually Somewhere around 4 or 4.30 But just like Pan-Africanism or Parish Type in Ia Ajua or Cultural Rebirth Connection, I Y A A D J U A, and then hit the follow button um, so you can stay abreast of her latest shows. Uh, and another show that I would like to add into this mix um, for those who listen to my um, one year celebration show, I had mentioned that. I was at a UNIA meeting, and there was a brother who was there, and he had mentioned that he was on Blog Talk Radio, and I never heard about Blog Talk before, and, and so um, checked him out, and that was my first introduction to Blog Talk. Um, and he hadn't did a show in a few years, and he is now back. Jacques Akboton, A-G-B-O-T-O-N, and the name of his show is The World Pan-African Voice. And uh, he just did a show. No, he has a show. No, yeah, he did a show today at um, 1 p.m. And I just see he's got another show scheduled um, for next Sunday, and it looks like 1 o'clock 
in the afternoon as well. So World Pan-African Voice by Jacques Agbotin. Now, I just want to let folks know if he, if, if you're not used to um, a heavy accent, a heavy um, African accent, then um, listening to the show might be a bit tough because he has one. But if that's not an issue, then then it's not an issue. But he he is another person who is um, straight, direct, um, doesn't pull any punches. Um, he's about Africa um, reoffending. He's about Africa getting back uh, on top uh, where we where we should be. And so you definitely want to check his shows out. It seems like Sundays at one o'clock. World Pan-African Voice, again, Jacques, Jacques Agboton, A-G-B-O-T-O-N. That is a very good brother. You want to check out his shows. And make sure to go to AfricanWorldAnalysis.com, African with a K, WorldAnalysis, all one word, .com. There you have the blog talk link. You also have our Africa's Reascension YouTube channel, which has visual clips of segments of these shows here, um, favorites saved from YouTube, and then uploads from my own personal archives. And those are um, being added to all the time, so you want to uh, might as well go ahead and subscribe to Africa's Reascension channel on YouTube. Um, at AfricanWorldAnalysis.com. It also gives you the link to um, my book, How to Make a Negro Christian, and it gives you a link to the the, um, news journal of record for the uncompromising African, self-titled African World Analysis. And again, um, the rest of the the last 10 issues are up right now. Two of them are free. Um, and there's a small fee for the rest, and the there's about 30, yeah, there's 31 issues in total, and so I'll be getting the rest of those up uh, within the month. So, again, AfricanWorldAnalysis.com is the hub right now for all things uncompromisingly African-centered. Oh man, today was a hot day Not in temperature, but in Africanness Uh, A friend of mine called me up Telling me about, not a surprise Nicole But Nicole I didn't know about um, That happened today Um, And a call for regular listeners Or well, for for non-regular listeners For first-time listeners um, and a calm is a, a traditional African spiritual ritual, basically, where our African gods come down on the physical plane and they manifest in trained people um, and give messages and transform the energy of the space. And it's just a uh, magnificent uh, event. It's a magnificent occurrence. If you have never been to a traditional African ritual in the Akan system, we call it a calm. But within Yoruba, within Bodu, within uh, whoever, you know, we have African rituals 
where where we uh, call on and thank and ask for blessings from our African gods that come here and talk to us directly so we don't have to uh, wonder <laughs> and, and figure out riddles and parables and all that sort of stuff. They talk to us directly. And so that was a magnificent thing. And then in the spirit of sports, right now I'm playing injured. Um, my back is hurting a bit because afterwards we have, I helped a friend move um, some stuff. Um, and, hey, that's that's what we do as African people help out our people. And so, um, so, yeah, so I'm playing injured right now, but we're going to get through it and, and – it's still going to be a dynamic, dynamic show. Um, we're going to go through a book analysis tonight on the African Perspective of History by um, Clement Cato, or C.T. Cato, K-E-T-O. Um, yeah, and I'll read what's on the show page and give an introduction of um, Professor Cato after the break, but which we will take in a minute. So... I definitely, again, want to thank all the listeners now and, and thank all the listeners who will be coming and especially thank all the um, people who download the show and listen to it at their leisure um, after they're done. Uh, the downloads, looking at them, definitely let me know uh, which shows you guys want to hear, um, which shows I should do better on. <laughs> uh, also let me know um, a whole bunch of other stuff. And so, again, I just want to thank everyone who listens live and or who downloads the archives and shares them with friends and family and little ones and everybody and anybody. So, yeah. So we will go ahead and play a promo and then play some music, and then get right into our book analysis. I want you to try and tell us everything that happened. Anything you can remember. Anything you can remember. I just want to tell the truth. The truth. The truth. There's your truth, my truth, and the truth. People say one thing and do another. We call them hypocrites. This is Queenie Fama, the truth terror. And that's what I look for. I look for the truth. Join me on Sundays on Blog Talk Radio at 6 p.m. That's Blog Talk Radio at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash queen hyphen ifama. I look forward to seeing you 6 p.m. on Sundays. Come join me. Let's get down to the butt naked truth. Hotep, everybody. I just want to tell the truth. The truth. The truth.
All right, we're back. Africa's Reascension. That was a. <clears throat> we first started off with a promo for uh, Queenie Fama, and then that was um, some music from last year's Tigger Ray Fest in Aquapem, Ghana. Live, straight, direct African music. All right. So, reading from the show page, tonight we will go through a small yet powerful monograph written in the early 90s, Gregorian calendar, called The African Perspective of History, excuse me, The African Centered Perspective of History, um, an introduction by C.T. Cato, professor at Temple. His center's analysis hopefully will help our discussion of, one, understanding our African center, and, two, help us understand when folks are trying to give us another center, sometimes under the guise of Africa and sometimes not. Um, there are also a few Hubble points within the text that we will discuss However, overall, this monograph is an important work, and understanding it and using its analysis hopefully will move us forward in making congruent our identity, culture, and consciousness so we can move in one accord towards a Bibi Fahodier, total African liberation. So, um, now, again, for folks who listen to our, um, um, our book talk last week, two weeks ago, two weeks ago, um, I ran through, went to, up to New York and ran through some books that I picked up. And I sort of mentioned this one, but didn't really. Um, but I've, I've seen this book referenced and used in, in, in a lot of articles and a lot of other books. And so when I saw it on the shelf for the price that it was being offered for, I was like, oh, yeah, I got to get this. And so, like I said, it's a monograph. Um, it's 59 readable pages, um, small index under the notes section and a glossary. Excuse me, no index. Small bibliography, glossary, and um, a note section. And then 59 readable pages. And, and, it was a treat. It was definitely a treat to um, pick this book up and get through. Um, a little background um, of Brother C.C. Cato or Clement Cato, and I don't want to even attempt to pronounce his South African middle name because I will butcher it, but uh, Professor Cato, K-E-T-O, was born um, February 23, 1941, in South Africa, uh, Mateyele. Uh, He's a historian by training. Uh, he used to teach at Vista University in South Africa before they um, broke up and disbanded, unfortunately, um, after a whole bunch of stuff that happened um, in the late 90s. Um, now, this information that I'm reading may be a bit dated. Um, I don't have, like, up to the minute information on it. As far as I know, he, he's still around. <laughs> um, according to this, uh, he's married. He's got two children. This was back. 
what I'm reading from is from 2007. So, like I said, it's a bit dated. So, if folks maybe know him, uh, then y'all can chime in and give me a bit more updated information. But I did want to give some type of background on the brother uh, before we dug into his book. Uh, he did most of his um, schooling in in South Africa. That's where he got his first BA degree. And he even taught high school in Lesotho and in Zambia in the 60s. Um, He came over to the U.S. and got an M.A. from American right here in (laughs) D.C. in 67. um, Went back to Africa, then came back, um, and got his Ph.D. from Georgetown, believe it or not, um, in 72, um, and and he's been he's taught some classes at at Howard and George University um, when he was here um, during that time. He usually teaches on political science. He taught political science and history at Lincoln, Oxford, um, Pennsylvania, and Elizabethtown University. And in 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 sixty nine and seventy, he was. Uh, assistant professor at the University of Kansas from 70 to 73. Um, And then he went to Temple, and he was at Temple from 73 to 91. No, uh, 73 to 96. Um, And he went back to South Africa um, for some time, and, and I'm not sure, reading from this, if he's in South Africa now, if he's over here now, I'm not sure. Um, he's authored a number of books, contributed articles and chapters to books, wrote journal articles and other publications. Uh, we're seeing he's written at least seven books. Uh, those of note, at least, well, all of them are of note for this show, but of course, the African perspective, Africa centered perspective of history, and he revised it in 93 and changed the title to um, an African Center Perspective History and Introduction. And so I think we'll be reading from the original document. He also wrote um, Vision, Identity, and Time, the Afrocentric Perspective and Study of the Past, uh, Pre-Industrial and Educational Policies and Practices, and then in 2000, it says he wrote another book called Vision and Time. Uh, he's a member of the National Council of Black Studies, and they even have named an award after him. Um, he's received other numerous awards from different um, different areas and venues. Uh, he served on the Organization of South Africans as their publicity secretary, and he's done a lot of other stuff as well. So um, this brother is an intellectual. He's for us. He's about liberation of our people. And um, that's why here at Africa's Ascension, we decided to um, share what he's got to say in this book because it's um, an important book.
So let's get right into it. He starts off in his introduction by quite simply stating the African-centered perspective of history rests on an rests on an unpretentious common sense premise that it is legitimate and intellectually useful to treat the continent of Africa as a geographical and cultural starting point, a center, so to speak. This serves as a reference point in the process of gathering and interpreting historical knowledge about people of African descent throughout the world and people in Africa itself. Perspective implies a viewpoint and a perceivable center from which to derive a coherent and constructive framework. Very good analogy right here. Just as farmers cannot plan to harvest a field of corn without an idea of where its center is located in order to map out the harvesting process, scholars cannot effectively study people without taking into account the scholars' own centers. So he keeps mentioning the term centers. And he'll break down what that means um, a little bit later on. Continuing, page two. First, investigators. And I'm missing something. He goes through, yeah, let me go back up. And again, we're in the introduction. And so, like you're supposed to do in the introduction, he lays out um, the definitional pieces. And so, um, he helps. He, he gives a quick definition of culture. While culture can be defined as systems of agreed upon meanings that serve as guidelines for behavior in any particular society, it also encompasses what a group has learned, created, and done to guarantee its biological survival through time. And again, as we we went and shared. Um, Bible Wade Noble's definition of culture previously, uh, which is detailed about seven, eight points. Um, we shared Baba Ajay Akoto's definition of culture. Um, this is this one shared by um, Professor Cato is nice and short, direct to the point. And we don't wanna no, I don't wanna get ahead of myself. But I'll just say that again. Culture, identity, and consciousness must be aligned in African people for us to move forward and do what we want to do. And those three things have to be in line before we can get this unity that everyone talks about, and rightly we should have it. But as the person who helped teach Dr. Cato or Melissa Sante, his his great quote that I love is that consciousness precedes unity. Consciousness precedes unity. So again, that ties into consciousness, culture, and identity. All have to be aligned for us to be for us to move forward. And so when we look at his definition of culture. Systems of agreed-upon meanings 
that serve as guidelines for behavior in any particular society. Whose culture, whose cultural dictates are we following? In the majority, somebody else's. What is our situation right now based on following someone else's culture? Piss poor globally. So therefore, we have to get back to our culture, our center, so then we can have the proper guidelines for our behavior. So that that, which is the only guarantee of our biological survival through time. So then he talks about um, when you're looking at a group of people and you're analyzing social phenomena, what do you need to look at? So he shares further down the page, investigators have to explain at the point where they develop theory how they perceive knowledge and its significance and how they interpret the relationship between the knowing subject, the person who knows, and the information that is known. And this is what we call epistemology, the study of knowledge. How do you know knowledge? What is your relationship to knowledge? European people have a specific approach to knowledge. We Africans have a specific approach to knowledge as well. And by us getting that mixed up, or not even getting it mixed up, by us not dealing with ours, not knowing ours, not wanting to know ours, all that sort of stuff. Hence, you see, we just Follow whoever, give us whatever. Now it's the Caucasoids. Tomorrow it could be Asian. But until it's us doing that for us, we'll continue being led and our situation won't change any. And so I I, I made a mention to highlight that because uh, at that level of epistemology, that, when we did our show on the deep structure of culture, if you remember, um, epistemology, cosmology, axiology, and ontology were on the assumption level, which was the level of culture which is the least amenable to change. And so a lot of, a lot of everything that I've been saying is in us already, but since we don't know to look at it as something African, as carryover from our, our African history, our African being, uh, we don't use it. We don't tap into it, so it lies dormant within us. And that ties right into the apiety that we do every day. We hope that this show gives information, says something to awaken that dormant African so then we can tap into our own epistemological level of understanding, our own cosmological understanding, our own, all of that. So now, 
so now he sort of gets into his piece on centers. Well, sort of. The reason why I say sort of is because he's still speaking again on if you are analyzing phenomena and you need you, you need to understand it and you need to look and check where the epistemology is, whose epistemology is being used, um, and then he goes down and he says, um, investigators should openly specify when they begin to apply methods derived from chosen methodologies and theories onto concrete solutions, the geographical and cultural location they adopt as the primordial cultural core. Often this hidden center, so to speak, represents the underlying premise from which researchers draw values and priorities with which they fashion the concepts that will be used to observe and judge world events. In other words, human scientists are encouraged to openly specify the particular regional center on the globe which provides the fulcrum on which they anchor historical and therefore human meaning and interpretation. This is important because there's a whole bunch of folks who want to debate origins of this, this, that, and the other, the African origins of Islam, the African origins of Christianity, the African origins of all this sort of stuff, blah, blah, blah. And, and I, again, as I've said countless times on Essential, if you really listen to them, while the title of the lecture might be the African origins of, when you really start listening, they're talking, Africa never comes up. And they're trying to place whatever they're talking about within an African context. And so what, what Professor Cato is saying is so important here. If you know, if you, if you have some understanding of African epistemology and you listen to these other folks, you can then be able to easily say, no, they're coming from an Arabic center. They're coming from a Christian center. They're coming from a Caucasoid center. They just draped what they're talking about loosely in kente cloth to get the black audience listening to them. And so some of these debates that we're having with some of these people, I mean, they, they shouldn't be debates because the other person is not coming from an African center. And so it's like, what you, what, what are you really talking about? I'm, I, I'm gonna go ahead and say it. I'm gonna go ahead and say this publicly. Wesley Muhammad. Everybody is jumping on the bandwagon, wanting to debate him. And I'm like, who is this dude? He's, <laughs> he's a, I ain't gonna go there. But um. And y'all know he's got Black Arabia, the African origins of Islam, and all that sort of stuff. I just, I just came to a revelation. It is possible 
that practically everything that 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 that, that, that uh, Muslim Muhammad is saying is correct. I'm doing a dramatic pause there. It's possible that everything he's saying is correct. In this vein, he is giving us when African people transformed, changed, turned into Arabs in their consciousness. That's what he's really doing. He's not given any African origins because he never deals with um, Africa proper. He doesn't deal with the African epistemology. He doesn't deal with African cosmology. It's all Arab-based, Muslim-based. So now when I, when I listen to him, I try to do it rarely, but when I listen to him, he is giving information, as I'm seeing it, when African people change and transformed and stopped fully coming from an African base and started adding in some other cultural information. At which point, so at the beginning, right when it happened, it was African and Arab. And so maybe you had a a bi-center. You you can't have a bi-center. Uh, <laughs> you, you you can only have confusion. You have a center or you're not. So so let me not even say by center, but right at the beginning, there was probably a closer convergence of of African understanding with this new emerging uh, Muslim or Arabic based uh, information. And then as time went on, of course, um, we know that. Um, in large parts, the African system gave way, uh, and then the, the, the Arabic sense, the Arabic culture took over. And so then the Arabic center took over in those people. And so I'm bringing him up, tying this in again with centers. Wesley Muhammad is coming from an Arab center. Under the guise of Africa to get black listeners. Period. If he didn't do the African guise, he didn't play around with Africa, hardly any black person would be listening to him. So he's doing that for strategic purposes. But if someone could really go in and, and, and hone out and draw out and make crystal clear how this group of people were living before this notion, the idea of an Arab even existed, then his work will show you how we changed, or at least when we changed, and aspects of that change. But that's it. Not no African origins of Islam, because when that comes in, you start chipping away at Africa proper And everyone that tries To do that that syncretistic Fusing the two together You can see Where it's getting us On the continent and over here And so I said it publicly But to put that out there So yeah 
And again, to bring it back to the center, to use this to to, to on page three, he has a um, like a, a, a long proverb. If you and we've heard bits and pieces of this before, but I think this might be the the whole thing. If you don't know where you are or where you have been, you cannot know where you are going. And if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. If you don't know where you are or where you have been, you cannot know where you are going. And if you don't know where you are going, any road will take you there. Since we have not properly and I'm talking, the work has been done, but I'm talking here in the blogosphere. I'm talking in, in, in the talk shoe sphere. I'm talking in a lot of these other debates that other folks be having. Since we have not fully and properly looked into what the African worldview is, what the African centered understanding of reality is, we take on whoever sounds good. We take on um, whatever worked for a little while but stopped working after a while. We take on a whole bunch of other stuff. So we're floating in the wind. We don't know who we are. We don't know where we are. We don't know where we've been. We attach ourselves to somebody else's history and culture and consciousness and identity. But it's not ours. Because any road will take you there Since we don't know that we're African Once we get back to our African center Then these other centers become crystal clear And then we can Stop debating Folks Who are wasting our time and we can uh, do what we need to do accordingly. So then we continue in the introduction. Um, yeah. European epistemology basically is Reading and writing. If it's in a book, if it's written down, that's how you learn. That's a, a, a main, main, huge, almost total way that the European epistemology works. Just that particular way of learning. Um, of course, they use other stuff. But that written word, that written modality is the main way that Caucasoids learn and teach. African people, we know about our oral tradition. Um, We have a written tradition as well. What what, 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 um, Baba Keto shares in this vein, creative production 
is in the sphere of history the moment they are completed. Drama, poetry, and dance have the singular power of creative reenactment again and again with great effect. Drama, poetry, and dance have the singular power of creative reenactment again and again with great effect. Those three things could also be labeled ritual. You do not directly see European ritual as a means of learning. They don't directly tell you that you're learning something by participating in X, Y, and Z, but that's sort of what they're doing. Within the African epistemological reality, we can effectively transmit lessons orally through plays, writing poetry, or the ritual dance. If you understand what you're looking at when you see the ritual dance, you are seeing a ritual being recreated that was done thousands and thousands of years ago. And by us reduplicating that moment, we tap back into that particular time and space. Again, going back to the Apai, past, present, and future becomes one when we do the rituals of the past. Now, this isn't the claim to be stuck in the past and stay there. <laughs> and we can and we should be making new rituals that teach deep, deep lessons as well for this particular generation that we're in. Uh, but I think it starts first with understanding what the past rituals were, doing those, getting a feel for them, getting a feel for how it's supposed to go, seeing what the what is being transferred, seeing the effectiveness of it, seeing the weakness of it, tweaking them, and then at that point you can create new rituals for the time that you're in. And see, that's another thing I hear. Folks, again, not wanting to deal with the past, forget about the past, and then just pull out a, pull a ritual out their butt for today. And they hadn't done the necessary background work again to understand, to see, to, to do trial and error, to see what works, to see what doesn't work, to see how to tweak it and then move on. You have every everybody ties into their past to move forward. If there is anybody that you are listening to on a regular basis that's saying forget about the past, it's all about right now, stop listening to them on a regular basis because they are giving you wrong information. So I, I, I just I highlighted that because I, I just really like that and that again helped lay out um, the an, an African understanding of how knowledge can be transferred. Now this this was interesting and it'll be nice I don't know to to maybe find some of his other works to see if he followed up on this concept. But this this is interesting. Check this out. This is on page four and five. History, at best, separates the first fundamental reality of a people's existence, namely the past, from the second fundamental reality of their existence, namely the present. 
The third element which completes the time triangle is the future. The future is a special case because it exists only in the vision people have about it and in the plans they make for it. Yet those plans are made and actualized in the context of the present. Let me let I just, and there's more to this, but this is just so powerful. I want to re I want to reread this. History, at its best, separates the first fundamental reality of a people's existence, namely their past. So history separates the past from the second fundamental reality of their existence, namely the present. The third element which completes the time triangle is the future. So you've got past, present, and future. And he doesn't actually have a diagram in here, so I don't know which one is at the apex and which ones are supposed to be at the bottom. I'm not sure. Uh, you could possibly say the future, maybe the past. This this is Kamal talking. I, I don't know this for sure. Maybe the past is at the top because it's the past that feeds into what you do in the present and your vision for the future. And so if you have a skewed vision of your past, that's going to leave that's going to create a skewed vision of your present. And you may not even have a vision for the future or it's definitely going to be skewed. So that might be how his triangle is laid out with the past at the top and then on the left side being the present and then the right side being the future. Don't quote me on that. Again, he doesn't have a diagram in this version of it. Maybe in his revised version he did. I'm not sure. But in just trying to talk it through, maybe that's how it is. Um, And so then he continues. A poetic rendition of this triangular relationship of the past, present, and future is superbly conveyed in the phrase, the present is a room furnished by the past and lit by the future. The present right now is a room. Picture that. The present is a room and it's furnished with the past and it's lit by the future. People always act, I'm continuing on, people always act in the present, which then becomes the past from which they can learn. They are always motivated by objectives and goals that lie in the future. The relationship of these three points of the time triangle are critical to the successful creation and sustenance of a meaningful historical consciousness. Again, you're going to keep hearing these words over and over again the longer you listen to African Reascension. Identity, culture, consciousness. That is where it's at, y'all. Before you get money, before you get people in political areas, they have to be aligned based on identity, culture, 
and consciousness. Amos has said it infinitely amount of times. By the way, Nobles has said it infinitely number of times, Mama Rimbai and me. All these folks that we say we have watched and read and loved and try to follow after have said this. And so Father Cato is just trying to, again, create a visual to, to, to get you to fully understand it by using the diagram of the time triangle and by using the phrase, the present is a room furnished by the past and lit by the future. People always act in the present, which then becomes the past that they can learn from. They are always motivated by objectives and goals that lie in the future. The relationship of these three points of the time triangle are critical to the successful creation and continuance, easier word for me to say, of a a meaningful historical consciousness. So what is in our past, excuse me, what, when you look at what's in the majority stolen African people's consciousness as far as our past is concerned, 1619, that's that's deliberately given to us as our beginnings, as our origin. And I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm. Def- I-, I hope to remember to, to use this magnificent quote by uh, Baba Konadu, which will tie in with something else that um, Dr. Keto says. But we are not 1619 creations. We did not just pop up and. I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm thinking of some other stuff that he says later in the book. So let me just go ahead and say that if you look at how the majority of stolen Africans here look at the past and what we say is our past, that directly is that directly translates to our present. If we started our existence as slaves, working for someone else and working in someone else's system. The highest level you can attain within that consciousness is controlling, running, being over, quote, unquote, that other people's thing. Meaning, some folks feel that having a black president, we have attained everything possible to attain in this country. And so Caucasoids have finally um, fulfilled all their cute-sounding words in their paper. We have arrived now. Everything is fine in the world. In America And so therefore The future then Is to be like the rock Because if you can be like the rock You may then One day Attain the position that he Attained 
which is the highest level of consciousness for an ex-slave, if slavery was your beginning. If, however, you understand that there was at least 200,000 years of history before we got brought over here, if you understand the whole kings and queens thing, if you understand that we ran societies and nations larger than the United States, that then totally reshapes what your present should look like because your past is something different. Your past is connected to your center, your history. Therefore, that gives you a different vision of the future. If we're not running nations now on our cultural terms, larger than the United States, then our future says that we should recreate the mentality, the, 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 the mentality and the consciousness that got us to do it in the first place for the future. That then makes you look at someone that looks like you running something that isn't yours based on a different reality, based on a different consciousness. It makes you look at it in a totally different light. Totally different light. You run in your own country your own way versus, quote, unquote, running somebody else's country the way they want you to. That's two totally different things. And that will lead to two totally different futures as far as planning, as far as the vision for what you want to do in the future. That gives you two totally different aspects on how to do that, two totally different visions. We have to understand our center, to use um, um, Dr. Cato's word. And by using our center, we tie into our history. Our past, which is not the same as Caucasus. Our present, which is not the same as Caucasus. And if we want to get out of this mess that we're in, we got to have a different future, which will not be the same as Caucasus. If our past is the same as theirs, it will lead to our present being the same as theirs, and our future will be the same as theirs. And right now, Caucasoid reality ain't looking too good, especially in America. Um, all of this global instability is going to blow back on America, I won't say very soon, but pretty soon. And depending upon how closely tied you are to this beast will determine how effed up you get, how messed up you get by it. We're all going to be affected living here. But if we already have certain things in place, if we are already working on um, autonomous, sustainable communities for ourselves, if we're already working on um, preparedness issues, if we're already setting up networks of community linked based on our African worldview, we will be affected when America gets messed up. But 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 the brunt of it would be a little bit less because we were prepared for it. 
Let me rephrase that. We were living our lives within the belly of the beast. So then when something happens to the beast, we won't be as affected by it. But for everyone else who's just thinking America is the best way to go and Huckazoid thought is the universal thought of everybody, once this thing falls, those folks will be the most affected. So here at Active Reascension, we're trying to give you the keys and a few tools so once it happens, you won't be too affected by it. Okay, so we're getting out of the introduction now. <laughs> I'm looking at the time like, oh, man. So, yeah, let's go through this. So let's take a break and then, you know, move into part one, sensors, geography, and language. And this is where he lays out. More so the, the 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 larger thesis of the book. So let's go ahead and uh, play a promo and maybe a quick clip, and then get back into an Africa-centered perspective of history. Book analysis by C. T. Cato, Africa's Reascension. Africa's reascension. Kamal McCasey Tahuti. As of this moment, we are at war. Blogtalkradio.com slash Kamal301. K A M A U 301. 760-454-1111. 760-454-1111. When are we going to, as African people, step up the dialogue? Sundays, 9 p.m. Eastern. Because it's black African power. An uncompromising, unapologetic, African-centered internet radio show. Until we reestablish Africa as the preeminent value, none of those other solutions mean a doggone thing. Blogtalkradio.com slash Kamal301. K-A-M-A-U-301. If you're not about nation building, you're not about African centeredness. 760-454-1111. 760-454-1111. As of this moment, we are at war. There is no evidence that black and white races can live in close proximity to each other in peace. Without, without whites attempting to oppress and exterminate the black. Blogtalkradio.com slash Kamau 301. K-A-M-A-U 301. What kind of God do you wish him? What's the name of it? Who taught you to praise him? Was this the God you were praying to before you were brought to these shores? Was this the religion you had before you were brought to these shores? Can you name one African God? Sundays, 9 p.m. Eastern. Blogtalkradio.com slash Kamau301. K-A-M-A-U-301. The degree to which the sets of information and the way we process information and the values and the skills we have available to us are shared by others 
same group we do, then, or to the degree that their skills and modes of processing information and information that they have available to them is compatible with our individual consciousness, then the group to which we belong shares then what we call a group consciousness. To the degree that such a group has been formed as the result of the fact that its members share a shared or common history, a shared or common ancestry or ethnicity, has been socialized according to the same or similar social practices as prescribed by the same or similar institutions, and has been trained and motivated to act and interact in ways which maintain and advances the interests of the group, it can be inferred that they participate in sharing a culture or a cultural consciousness. What are we saying here? The all right, we are back after this re-ascension. Uh, we played my promo, and then we played um, a clip by Baba Amos Wilson talking about the importance of group, what? Say it with me, group consciousness. Yes, group consciousness. Uh, again, the call-in number for anyone that wants to uh, chime in, seven on what we said already, 760-454-1111. 7604541111. Um, I definitely want to thank everyone who is listening um, live, who's um, on the on the phone or on their computer listening. Um, give a shout out to um, 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 Kwame and Akosua. Uh, definitely, um, you guys have been long time listeners, long time supporters. And I really, really appreciate that. Um, there's about 27,951,806 other things you all could be doing on Sunday nights. And um, either one of y'all or both of y'all choose to um, check out Africa's Reascension on a regular basis. And if you aren't able to, you definitely download it. So I definitely want to say Madasi, Madasi P for you guys and for everyone else who I may not know but who does the same thing, Madassi P, thank you very, very much to y'all as well. So, in in, in, in uh, this section here, Centers, Geography, and Language, what he's trying to do briefly, again, because it's a monogram, is he wants to show quickly how the European center is dominant. And he even makes um, the statement, some of this may appear rudimentary to those students and scholars who already function on an advanced level of um, centrist theory of human knowledge, um, but he's given a, a, a foundation with concrete examples um, for other folks who may just be beginning to, to um, climb to understand centered knowledge, as he says. And so he takes excuse me, a few pages to go through this. And so he just directly <laughs> laid out that um, the world as it is currently conceptualized, and he says many, I'll say all, or 98% of 
of the learning institutions around the world and generally cast in a Europe-centered framework. In Europe and in areas of the world colonized only by people of European descent, this framework makes a great deal of sense and facilitates knowledge acquisition and knowledge transmission in the human sciences. However, we should add a cautionary note. In regions where people from different parts of the world have come together, areas which he calls um, zones of human confluence, to borrow from Shinkansen's joke, the Europe-centered framework by itself creates confusion and distortion because it employs a framework which is socially and culturally inadequate for the polycentric environment or milieu. Again, we don't challenge European hegemony in all the stuff. And then when we do, as we mentioned earlier, we let Arab-centered perspectives come in and act as the hegemony. And and I'm waiting to see. I mean, I mean, it may be too early now, but I'm sure when when our children's children are around, we're gonna have black folks promoting the Chinese or the Asian center above the African center, like we have fools like Skip Gates who promote the um, Europe center to black folks. You have other folks who I mentioned, hell, I'd already mentioned Wesley Muhammad, who promotes the Arab Center, and 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 no, here at Africa's Reascension, we're here to counter that with the African Center. But to come back, based on time, um, page nine, the intellectual dominance of the Europe-centered perspective around the world reflects the attendant effects on the growth of global knowledge of the expansion of Europe-controlled political economy and military power in other parts of the world and ensuing establishment of European-centered intellectual hegemony on most, if not all, learning centers of the world since 1500. So again, that, 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 now, in the text, as it's actually written, and maybe, again, this maybe he changed it on the, in the revised version, but he says until a few decades ago, and from reading further on, it seems like he thinks that the European, this is Kamal talking about, it seems like he thinks that the Europe dominant, dominance in the intellectual sphere, sphere has stopped. I don't know where he gets that from. I don't know if that's the ivory tower syndrome, the ebony tower syndrome. I don't know. Correct frequent listeners of African Guru Ascension, y'all know. I work in a bookstore, a white-owned bookstore. I can confidently say that 98% of the nonfiction books in that store, I don't care what it's talking about, reflects the Europe-centered framework of reality. Still today, 2011 Gregorian calendar. 
I can confidently say that 98% of the programming on television, even on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, all those channels, clearly, clearly promotes a Europe-centered framework and perspective on reality. So, again, I hope that he tweaked that and, or changed it in the revised edition or, or maybe in one of his later books. Um, he, 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 he was tripping there. It has not stopped. Uh, some might even argue it's gotten, more, it's gotten a lot more sophisticated, so it's sort of maybe even been amped up a bit. But it has not stopped. So that's a, a, a small <laughs> faux pas on, on Mr. Cato's part. Now, to, just to quickly go through the language, geography and language, he basically, you know, to again, he's using these two as quick examples to show how um, the, the, the European, Europe-centered framework is dominant, and he talks about time, how, how all the, 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 the time references are the Greenwich Mean Time. And and the, the longitude, the, the zero longitude point is in Western Europe, and so all of us are using time based on its center being in Europe. Then these ter- then he goes into um, other types of terms, Middle East, Far East, all that sort of stuff. It's coming from. Europe at the center, looking at the world from Europe at the center, and then making its regional declarations from that way. He makes mention the Middle East, in an Asia-centered perspective, deserves to be called Southwest Asia. And see, now that's something I never heard of, but that that makes more sense. <laughs> if, if again, depending upon the center that you're coming from. He says, similarly, in the United States, the Midwest and the Far West reflect patterns of human settlement by American immigrants of Anglo-European descent who came to dominate the continent, dominate um, here, America, after the Mexican War in 1846 um, and 48. The continents of America, then, you know, he talks about even America. The term <laughs> and, and calling the original people Who were here the Indians And we all know That that um, Cristobal Colon I.E. Christopher Columbus Mistakenly thought he had reached India And he decided to then Name all the people Indians that he saw um, And that's why we still Call them Indians today Not based on any intellectual rigor but due to a navigational error by that bastard who opened up um, <laughs> who opened up the Maafa to us as well. Um, and then lastly, within geography, um, he makes the point of the Mercator maps, which are still in majority existence today. I challenge you to go to any of these schools, any of these non non-African-based schools, whether it's charter or independent. Go to a white school, basically, 
and look at the maps that they are using, mostly all of them still today, 2011 Gorian calendar, are Mercator projection maps, which originated in 1569, which distorts the relative size of land masses in the world in favor of the northern tier in which Europe is located, despite the availability of maps using the Peter projection since 1980. The Peter's projection map shows the true relative size of land masses in the world. And, and once I found that out, I went quickly and bought me a Peter's projection map, and I have it displayed prominently in my room right now. I'm looking at it right now. And that's, you know, Africa. When you look at the place we now call Africa, you can see its proper size. And, and, and the northern side isn't given more prominence than the southern side. It's, 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 it's a better done map. With the Peter's projection map, you can definitely see, you can definitely extrapolate that America can fit three times in Africa, and you still got room left over. But they don't use Peter's projection map because there's that European agenda that's going on. And then as a quick side note, he mentions that another telling observation is that no maps are made with the southern hemisphere at the top although the Earth as a sphere floating in space could be depicted accurately either way. And see, again, that's another interesting point I never thought of. I, I, I actually did see, like, you know, in, in not like a whole map, but if you look at, yeah, actually at the bottom of the Peter's projection map, they give um, a few different ways that you could look at maps that you can look at the world. And so if I'm looking right, like right at the bottom, I think he does flip it and put the um, south at the top. But you don't see any major maps with the south at the top. Just because, I mean, why not? Why not? Uh, and we won't get into pole shifts and, and all that sort of stuff, which the south may have used to have been at the top before the pole shift and all that. And then language, that one's, you know, easy. I'm speaking to you in English. <laughs> and, and and we run around um, trying to learn all these European languages. Um, and and we don't give a damn about learning Tree or Swahili or Madinka or Ewe or anything like that, even though that's probably those languages and others are probably more closely linked to the, the line, our own personal lineages. The major part, coming from page 11, the major part of the problem in language use for history and social sciences arise when people who use language claim universal validity and application for the regional aspects of its connotation thereby falsely depicting as universal that which is legitimately parochial or regional. And then, quickly, he makes a nice statement for, um, again, we're doing all these debates and all this other crap, but there's so much 
research and so much work that needs to be done that we're not doing. He talks about how ludicrous it is to attempt to properly and fully express African thoughts in European languages. So the common, decisive, and unifying thread in this instance is the European language used to express African thought. However, when we study, integrate, and analyze the same literature with literature in Yoruba, Akan, Kiswahili, Amharic, Chibembe, Zuru, Zulu, etc. We are closer to employing an integrative Africa-centered perspective of the literature because what binds the literatures together is the African experience and not simply the medium of expressing the experience. And also, everyone worth their weight will tell you that a lot, a lot, 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 lot of African concepts can't even be properly expressed in English. So you have to twist and reduce and shrink <laughs> the, 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 the meaning of the original African word and, and, and context into a very highly restrictive English word. When you think of some of the words for the creative force of the universe, I don't care what anybody says. God, that term, G-O-D, is not an African term. We never came up with that term. When we wanted to talk about the creative forces of the universe, we have names for it. And those names don't just neatly translate into God. They damn near, most of the time, translate into whole paragraphs. That which is unseen but felt by all and, 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 and stuff like that. And, and, and as Dr. Clark talks about, Europeans with their intellectual laziness will then, you know, collapse and reduce stuff to another term and then think that they know what they're talking about. And then we do that as well. Uh, Dibia and 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 a comfort and um, Baba Lao. We we take for granted that that translates into priest. But if you look at the term Dibia, Baba Lao. And a comfort. It is so much more than the English connotated priest that we do a disservice every time we put an equal sign between a comfort and priest. Babalao and priest. We, we do our African selves a disservice by putting the equal sign in there. And so, again, the, 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 the language piece and using the European language to solely express African concepts. He, and especially Ruby Wakiyongo and um, Kwesi Kapra, um, definitely are like, no, we need to learn our languages so that we can better 
and properly understand um, what it is we're talking about and who we are and African thought. So then he moves into a discussion on social sciences and history. Which was a a very good discussion. And he's contrasting again, of course, our 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 African centered perspective with your centered perspective. And he constantly is coming back in and trying to make sure that we understand that the Europe centered perspective is not universal. It is the Europe centered perspective which has claimed universality because they're the ones who's running stuff temporarily right now. So on page sixteen and seventeen An Africa-centered perspective of history liberates those who are still prisoners of blind universal history. That's in quotes. When scholars become cognizant of the role of centers, frameworks, and perspectives, they are rescued from intellectual illusion. Their consciousness is raised to a new level at which they become aware that what they regard as universal history is as much a product of the mind of the historian who wrote it as it is the product of the actions of the people who actually lived it. In other words, he warns everyone that none of us can avoid the implicit influence of the historian's perspective derived from some specific center in the history If they say they being objective, they lie. If they're saying that this is a universal perspective, they lie. In practically everything that I have ever looked at that talks about being universal, they skip over African thought. And on just a rudimentary level, I mean a, 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 a fourth grader would understand this. Universal means we are looking at everyone and trying to find the, the, the common points that would be applicable to everyone. How can you be talking about everyone when you leave out the second largest landmass on the freaking planet? That is not universal, universal thought, period. And then when they do want to placate it, they'll, they'll maybe throw in some some comedic thought, but then they even mess that up and do the comedic thought from a European slant, the European angle. So you're still not getting African thought most of the time, even when they add in Kenneth in their analysis of stuff. Stop using the term universal if you are not knowledgeable about African, African thought. And for me, in my research, most of the time when you do add in 
African thought, then the whole universal thing falls apart because Africa usually looks at stuff differently and adds in different aspects that especially the European doesn't add in, and some of the, and definitely that the Arab doesn't add in, and maybe depending on what it is you're talking about that the that the Asians may or may not be added in. So so this just universal term really needs to be thrown out. Um, and 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 we need to see stuff as it is. And like um, Dr. Cato had said earlier, folks need to just go ahead and specify up front that you're coming from a particular center. Then it's all clear. The Caucasoids, their rhetorical ethic, if you read Yurugu by Marimba Ani, they, they, they lie with no conscience. So they'll tell you something is universal, and they know you don't know no better, and they know you won't look and do any digging or research, so you'll be like, oh, okay, I guess it's universal. Everybody thinks this way. Everybody does this. No. No, no, no. When you really dig into the African-centered perspective of reality, a lot of these universal trappings falls away, if you really look at it properly. Answer, then he goes so then he has two particular areas. Well, then he has the hegemic, well, that's just a brief section. He has the hegemic Europe-centered perspective. Then he talks about the non-hegemic Europe-centered perspective. And then he moves to the Africa-centered perspective. And... Um, Where to start here. This perspective, okay, the, the hegemic Europe-centered perspective, to make sure that we're clear, because, again, he, he starts off by talking about the most prevalent type of Europe-centered perspective 30 years ago or so was the hegemic, hegemonic one. And, again, I don't know what he was smoking in, 90, in 89 or 91 when he wrote this, but it ain't changed one whit. They give a lot more lip service to stuff. There are a few people, a few individuals who speak from a non-Europe center who may be um, calculate themselves. Uh, but the, the, the hegemonic Europe-centered framework is still the dominant one, period, point blank. This perspective indiscriminately imposed the parochial aspects of the European perspective on the rest of the world. The perspective made implicit claims of universality for legitimate Europe-centered values before any in-depth comparative studies were undertaken in other parts of the world to verify whether the European experience lived up to the claim of universality. The term comparative studies was used loosely by practitioners of this perspective to judge the rest of the world using culturally cultural preferences that were based on a totalizing Europe-centered framework. And he says, that, however, was not the worst part of the problematic. This Eurocentric framework was usually implicit rather than explicit. It was a hidden center. 
the explicit terminology emphasized in the sounding phrases and words such as international, global, and cosmopolitan should represent transnational European trends and development. In the process of celebrating its center and imposing it on the rest of humanity, it made large sections of humanity, in fact, the majority of the world's people, into a minority that was often absent from history, invisible, peripheral, and inconsequential. And that is still going on today. Right now, it ain't changed. Looking at the time, we will do overtime because we're on page 19 or 20 right now, and it's going to take us a little bit of time. So we got about 22 minutes left. So for anyone who would like to continue after that time is gone, because for those listening on the computer, your stream will cut off in 22 minutes. Unless you have called in to 760-454-1111 in 22 minutes, and we'll then you can hear um, the continuation. And if not, then it will definitely be available for you in archive download. And so then to bring the craziness of this um, hegemonic Europe-centered perspective into perspective, he gives the world population numbers. At that time, again, he wrote this in 89, 90. Uh, And he shows that at that time, Asia was 61.6% of the world population. Africa was 12.5. Europe was only 10.6. And then in in number-wise, In Europe proper, there was only 493 million people, um, then close to 400 million in um, what he calls North and Middle America. And so according to any interpretation, yeah, let me start here, page 19 going to 20. The distribution of the world's population according to 1986 population estimates demonstrates just how distorting the conclusions drawn from the assumptions of a hegemonic Europe-centered perspective could be, is, that's me saying that, is, in a global context. And it gives the numbers. According to any interpretation of these figures, the people of Asia constitute two-thirds of humanity and may have constituted the majority of the world population for the last four centuries. Figures on Africa can also be augmented by numbers from the African diaspora in Asia and the Americas to a total that is close to a billion people. So, again, this was about 12 years ago, so I think we're at a billion, 300 million now. These figures question the representative nature of the European experience alone even when that experience later percolates to other parts of the globe. The figures provide prima facie evidence that on the whole, people on continents outside of the Asia side of the Asia-Europe landmass 
make up varying sizes of the world's numerical minorities, no matter how one slices the world population pie. So he's laying out the fact that it's stupid for the Europe-centered perspective to be seen as universal and then to be taken as universal when they, in effect, are a minority of people compared to the billion or so Asians and the billion or so Africans in the world. He touches on in the next area the non-hegemic Europe-centered perspective, and for some reason, I think he feels that this is um, gaining this is gaining steam, and that that this is at that time that was possibly about to maybe even take over the hegemonic hegemonic um, Europe-centered perspective, and then he goes through and he talks about. Um, two um, Concussoid authors I'm assuming Concussoid William Appleman Williams Who looks at And critiques His own European perspective And uh, He references um, Harold Cruz Who made A critique And then he also Uses um, Sandy Cohen Who Attempts to Bring out And talk about Oh, and John Lucas, um, who who are are looking at and critiquing um, aspects of uh, 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 the universality of the European perspective on the rest of the world. And to me, I just... I, I, I don't see it. Again, you've got, again, folks like Edward Said, who, who has done a great critique um, of Western culture. Uh, you've got Tariq Ali. You've got Noam Chomsky. You do have individuals who have rightly critiqued um, European intellectual dominance and all that sort of stuff. But that is not even nowhere near close to being uh, the dominant mode of thought that has not changed um, the majority of the way that, that, that historians teach and write their books, philosophers teach, European philosophers write and teach their books. Um, that, that, that it's not, it, it may get a few footnotes and a little bit of lip service within the European Cognitive educational system. Uh, they they may bring up you know Marxism and communism as a critique of the uh, European capitalist system and other stuff like that. But um, again, I, I think that's another faux pas on 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 his take that that it's these few individuals who are bringing up these critiques are actually um, breaking down and changing the hegemonic European perspective on world reality. Uh, it's create, He says it's created a space 
for the multi-centered argument um, so you can now more or less have an Asia-centered perspective on the world and an African-centered perspective of the world. Um, That might be true. That might have helped get those other type of aspects in to at least uh, be in the dialogue a little bit. A few rogue Caucasoids who have attempted to look at and critique their own system has not changed the totality of the system. And, and, and again, that's hopefully, you know, in, in some future, in, in another book that he's written, maybe he has um, saw that and understood that and, and hopefully. Uh, should okay. Here I got this highlighted, and so he's coming off the heels of Sandy Cohen and their supposed critique on um, historical culture, looking and and they're using a multi or many centered perspective. Then he adds. Professor Cato adds, the major question it seems to me should center around whether the history that is written liberates the minds of the many and also empowers them by encouraging them to think in ways that center their observations on themselves, about themselves, on their own historical roots. Some frameworks imprison the perspective of ordinary people by encouraging them to view themselves solely through perspectives of outsiders who may bear hostile or indifferent attitudes to their communities. And so that's also a danger, I feel, of the the, the tried and, and sort of failed now multicultural perspectives. Right at that time, when we were pushing and sort of winning on some level to get folks, to get African folks to look at themselves and use an African-centered perspective, the Caucasoids countered that by saying, well, then let's use multicultural. Let's look at everybody. You catch that trick? It started off only European. We come in and say, y'all can do European, but we ain't European, so we're go- we're Africans, so we're going to use our perspective and look at us. Then they go, then they counter that by saying, no, that's wrong. You want to do that? Let's use a multicultural perspective. Let's look at everybody. When you look at everybody, you still don't center yourselves on who you are. And you can't really look at everybody, especially in a classroom context. Because how would you be able to do proper justice to all human groups of people (coughs) in the classroom setting? It would take years and years and years to break down the and get folks to understand the Asia-centered perspective of, of reality. It would take years and years and years and years and years to get us to understand the African perspective of history. 
and we've been fully inundated since we got brought over here with the European Europe-centered <coughs> perspective of reality. So this multicultural piece is lip service. Point blank, it's lip service. And then when you look at the other the aspects of culture that are included in these multicultural classes and programs and talk, oh, we're going to use some African food and have some Chinese dances. Yeah. <coughs> That's cute and that's nice. But let's get into African epistemology today. Let's look at some deep Chinese philosophy today. They ain't going to do that. Let's talk about how in ancient times, African people invented writing. In modern times, it was Chinese people in, I think, 1067, or Asians, let me just say it that way, in 1067, who created the first printing press? Yeah. I, I got a book here called The Eastern Origins of Western Civilization. <clears throat> Pretty interesting book. There are some issues to that. But that was one thing that jumped out at me, that, that, that Asians had printing at, at, in 1067 A.D., one zero six seven. It was it was created and made differently from the the, the Gutenberg, not Gutenberg from um, ah, the Gutenberg printing press. I think it was Gutenberg printing press. Um, I think it, 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 the difference was movable type or something like that. I have to reread it, but they skip you, you, European folks. Probably skip over the fact that little piece and just focus on, oh, well, we were the first ones to create the first print book and all that sort of stuff. But it was actually done centuries and centuries before them by other folks. Um, so, again, you, you don't, you, 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 this multicultural piece is um, a fallacy. And especially for us, Let me be clear, that's why I'm pausing. I'm not saying that we should not look at and study and know other people. That's stupid. We're not the only people on the planet, so you have to know and study other people. But you do not do that and not know yourself. You start with you. As Dr. Clark always said, you put your cultural armor on first. And then once that is tight, then you can look at and study and deal with and whatever, whatever, everybody else. Because you are properly secure in your center, and you won't get knocked off your center in dealing with other folks. And so then... He moves into the Afrocentric perspective. So what we're about to do now, I know we got a little bit of time, but I really need to take a break. <laughs> My voice is tripping. So I'm going to play some music and then come back, and we'll have a little bit of time uh, 
before the live stream drops off. So let me go ahead and find some quick music and put it on. You're listening to Africa's Reascension. Stole from me 
All right, back Africa's reascension. That was Brothers Keeper with Cracker Jesus. Where the hell you been? Yeah, you heard that right. Cracker Jesus. Where the hell you been? So again, for everyone who's listening on your computers, you got two minutes left, and then that live stream will cut off. <clears throat> so you need to call in. 760-454-1111 to continue to be a part of this discussion. We are now on page 27, so we got about a few more pages to go. And then a little, then some NP. So we are going to do some overtime, like I said. So uh, before, yeah. <clears throat> so. Seven six zero four five four one 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 one. If you want to continue to be a part of this, uh, I'm leaning towards next week's show being being a breakdown of one of the um, audio lectures that we played before, and I'm just trying to decide if I want to do Mama Rimba or Baba Jacob Carruthers. Um, but we're going to listen to clips and go through some analysis of those clips and then continue and go from there and just build. So, again, another teaching session sort of like this one. So this is a book analysis, and next week we'll probably do a um, lecture analysis. Um, but I have, like I say, I haven't figured out if I want to do Mama Rimba or Baba Jacob. Um, so you have to tune in and figure out. So we'll go ahead and play the closing and then come back and get back into the rest of Africa-Centered Perspective of History by C.T. Cato. Abibi Fahodier, Total African Liberation, Yabedi Enkomim, We Will Be Victorious. See everyone who calls in after the break. system of European control works is that you have to accept a concept of reality which makes them superior. If you deny that, their thing will not work and they will lose their control. All right. <clears throat> we are back. Again, I want to thank everyone who's sticking in listening in for the overtime and everyone else, you know, you'll download it on archive and check it out. So we're on page 27, Africa-centered perspective, gender, and class. Now, with these two or three pages, he's sort of talking about class, but not really. He really is more laying out the gender piece here, and so we're going to get into that. <laughs> The the Africa-centered perspective of history revolves around the simple argument that the African historical experience can rightfully provide a focus for scholarship that explains the world and its development through the prism of African eyes and experience. And given the past negative experience with hegemonic Europe-centered scholarship, the African 
historical experience can provide an affirmative focus for people of African descent. The world of Africa and descendants of Africa and the world of scholarship about them is still the only one at the end of the 20th century, Gregorian calendar, that retains a colonial signature whereby experts and authorities outside African communities exceed those that are inside those communities. This has led to an unfortunate predilection among people of African ancestry. African people have tended in the past to surrender the right of academic self-affirmation to others, thereby accepting conclusions of a Eurocentric framework that have assigned a permanent peripheral role for the Africa-centered perspective in the world's growing knowledge industry. Indeed, many of these quote-unquote authorities who study and write about African world and exercise great influence over the outside world perception of Africa and Africans, the understanding of its value priorities, the vision of its future, the capacity to divine its very efforts for insiders and outsiders alike often are not burdened with the knowledge of one African or African-derived language. And other folks, I'm going to, uh, this me now, other folks have mentioned that as well. Um, Kwesi Konadu, um, um, Baba Ajay Koto, and others. When you want to look for books on African history, <coughs> In the, in the universities, they give you Sage, F-A-G-E. They give you um, Vansini, V-A-N-S-I-N-I. They give you um, Thompson. They they give you all these other folks, but they won't give you Melissa Sante, who got his book out called History of Africa. They won't give you any John G. Jackson or, or Ages of Gold and Silver and Intro to African Civilizations. They won't give you any. Um, John Henry Clark and, 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 and um, oh, what's what's that yellow book? Um, New Dimensions of African History, I think is the title. Which in the back of that book, he lay he and Doctor Ben lay out a whole curriculum that you can put together and use for studying African history, and they barely give you. Basil Davidson, which is who, who just became, who just passed, I think last year, who was one of those, you know, I don't like this term too much, but one of those good white folks who attempted to look at Africa from an African perspective, even though he was a Caucasian, and and he by leaps and bounds over those other four folks that I mentioned uh, did very well in doing that, and luckily when I was um, out in the university system at that time, and I, I did get a very good dose of basic Davidson. But most folks don't. <clears throat> most folks get those other four folks that I just mentioned um, who were giving you the first European, the first Caucasoid to come into Africa. 
and which African was the first to kowtow to European thought. Those things are put on the test for you to remember for grades, but, but how the people lived for real, for real, before Caucasoid incursion, you don't get that. You got to dig for that. That's not what's being graded. And so that, that again, ties back into where <clears throat> Asia, Asian history, they have accepted Asian historians who are the experts and who are the authorities over them. And a, a, a large group of Asians, you know, may read the so-called European authorities on their history but they will go and get the final word on it from their own people. We still aren't at that level. We'll read Melissa Asante's History of Africa, but then go to a Caucasoid authority to see if they got it mentioned in there. And we should be doing that the other way. (laughs) You you read something that J.D. Sage wrote, and then go back and see if 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 Melissa or or Chinwezu, um or again Dr. Jackson or Dr. Clark validates what they say, and if they don't, then leave it alone. <clears throat> so now he moves into briefly the role of gender complementarity within African society, the African society and within Africa-centered perspective of looking at history. And, and, and I thought all of this was quite interesting. They are, there are radical implications for historical research that flow from recognizing the centrality of gender complementarity. For example, the very nature of the early recorded division of labor by gender was assigned, was, which assigned to women the task of gathering vegetable products close to home while men hunted animals or mobile protein further afield, strongly supports the convention that the domestication of plants or the same Neolithic revolution that led to agriculture was the invention of women rather than men. If this were indeed the case in the early history of Africa, the dominance of women in the sector of agriculture production in modern Africa is more in keeping with their traditional role than the theories of Europe-centered developmentalist scholars of the 60s who assume that male-dominated agriculture should automatically be the social model for Africa. Now, check this one out. This one, this is huge. Page 28. There is also another fundamental issue that relates to the historical distinction between the individual rights of women and the group rights of women in specific African societies. These historical groups' rights, which assured women collective power, economic leverage, and social control over important public affairs, were replaced by the property concepts 
and then by the bestowal of equal individual rights with men during the colonial period and independence periods. Ironically, no, before, so, so are you getting that? Are, are you following me? So, specific African societies had collective women's rights. And those collective women's rights ensured individual women's rights. Caucasoids come in, and they don't immediately see the individual women's rights, and so they come in and, and, and attempt to give that to them. But in giving that to them, they then broke up the collective right system that, they already, that we already had, which already ensured individual rights. So let's continue. Ironically, this development led to the loss of effective group control of aspects of public life by African women in exchange for highly publicized tokenism gestures to individual women accompanied by substantive peripheralization of women as a group in public affairs. The colonial and post-colonial realignment of gender rights did not, in terms of power, restore the pre-colonial group leverage that women enjoyed. Instead of expanding the sphere of effective group rights that women already enjoyed onto the terrains of equal rights, women were granted equal rights that lacked an internal internal material resource base to sustain them. And a sister that walks through this process in her magnificent book, Reinventing Africa by Ifi Amadeume, I-F-I-A-M-A-D-I-U-M-E. I would recommend that book on the highest authority I can think of, especially to black women who get confused by this feminism, womanism crap, she breaks that down better than almost anybody I've ever read. And so her entire book, I mean, the whole book isn't just about that, but she talks about it a lot because um, it's the subtitle, I think, is Religion, Gender, um, and something else I forget. (laughs) But her book, excuse me, Reinventing Africa by Ifi Amadeyume complements what Brother Cato just said as far as Caucasoids impose their worldview on the women and thinking that they were giving them individual rights because the men were oppressing them. But what they were really was doing was breaking down the systems that we already had that already ensured individual rights for the women as well as giving them collective rights as a group. And it broke down the the, the collective women's power base that they had by breaking them into individuals disconnected from each other. And then they decided to give certain women token 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 positions, token titles, token all of it. 
And oh God, I, I, I'm having a flashback to <laughs> one of the things that um, you see on my DM. I say she she gives a, a full example of that, breaks it down with a women's group in Nigeria and how that happened. And so I won't get into that now because don't want to run out of time before we finish this. But I just want to bring that up. And so in tying it in with the totality of the book, you don't get that understanding of of our society coming from a European framework, which is patriarchal period, highly patriarchal period. Woman be damned. Woman is less than. Woman is what? <laughs> exactly. Woman is, huh? And so you, you, you don't get that looking at our, our history and experience from a European perspective. But if you come from an African perspective and then you look at our society, you'll be able to pick that up and see that a lot easier and a lot better. And so that's where he was going with that. So then, he, before his conclusion, part two, applying the Africa-centered perspective. And the, <coughs> excuse me, the first part of this is he talks about concept building. And the only thing I'll mention for this part is I did not know this. This was I, I learned again fifty nine pages, and I learned quite a lot, a bit of stuff in this in this monograph. The practice, check this out, this is page 31. The practice of regarding the majority of the world's people as the third world began as a positive and affirmative act at the Bandung Conference in 1955, B-A-N-D-U-N-G, Magnus Conference. If you hadn't heard about that, you need to Google it and check it out. The practice of regarding the majority of the world's people as the third world began as a positive and affirmative act at Bandung in 1955. A group of African and Asian countries, which did not view themselves as ideological appendages to either East or West, defined themselves as a third force in world affairs that was capable of judging international developments on their own merits. But now we know how tricky these damn punkazoids are. And so now economic developmentalist scholars have turned the term third world into a dependent concept predicated on poverty, low economic performance, low per capita income, and unfavorable health statistics. Third world and fourth world have now come to signify human poverty, lack of skills, and resources for self-generating economic development. The term describes a peripheral relationship of dependence and the status of a supplicant state. And then he even goes on, but I, I, I just really, I did not know that, that we had created the term and attempted to use it for something positive, and Caucasus got a hold to it, and it took a few years, and now they have flipped it. And so now when you think of third world, you think of Ethiopian kids, you can see their ribs and flies burn around them. Send money to this white person and they'll help 
pad their pockets. I mean, help the kids supposedly. Yeah. And so that's all I'll say about that because it's called the concept of the third world. Those are little, you know, he talks about it a little bit. And then moves on. And then he has a piece here on Marxist theory and an African centered perspective. Um, I could do four whole shows doing a critique of Marxism and socialism. But what I what I all I'll say what did I highlight there? He breaks Marxist theory into two aspects. He breaks it into um the analytical and the predictive. He says the analytical aspect of Marxist theory can interact with an African centered perspective of history while the predictive aspect stands in direct conflict with the non-hegemonic Afrocentric framework of history. Marxist theory as an analytical tool with which to unravel the elements of European history is valuable as an expose or as a critique of social domination. Under very specific conditions, a Marxist analysis can coexist and enrich the methodological repertoire of any centric perspective of history. However, the quote-unquote scientific elements of Marxist theory that claim to predict future developments in human affairs through a special insight into the universal laws of social change are incompatible with an Africa-centered perspective that he outlined earlier because they totalize complex social reality. Equally important, Marxist and neo-Marxist theoreticians clothe themselves with the banner of unqualified universalism. And when they do that, they forget that the conceptual derivations of their meta-theory of history are based largely on the study of the European existence. Their claim of universalism, therefore, simply extends under the guise of radical change. Y'all, so, y'all black socialists catch that? Under the guise of radical change, the application of a hegemonic Europe-centered perspective to the rest of the world. In its most, I really like this term right here, in its most crude, dogmatic form, the Marxist approach is not only antithetical, but hostile to an African-centered perspective because it denies the importance of culture. And if any of y'all have ever talked with one of these black-skinned Marxists, you know what I'm talking about. They cannot seem to wrap their head around what culture is and how it defines behavior. They just lump it all into economics and money and economic systems and all that sort of stuff. Economic system, whatever you choose to do, barter, capitalism, socialism, all of it is a mode of exchange agreed upon by people. So whether you're going to trade services as the barter system, whether you're going to trade 
actual things that you give a value on within the capitalist system, or if you're going to give everything to the state and let it give it back to you as in the communist system, all of those revolve around human beings agreeing upon the mode of exchange. That still falls within a cultural context, y'all. It does not fall outside of it. It's still within a cultural context. So if the culture has been changed and has been skewed, even in the communist, socialist aspect, if the state is still coming and operating from a culture foreign, then the people, you are then trusting the state to fairly divvy up the wealth to everyone fairly. You're hoping that they do that. You haven't transformed the cultural values of those people who make up the state to ensure that it's fairly done. Because the the talk of culture never comes up within the socialist piece. Again, I'm not going to get onto that. I could easily do four shows on that because it's irritating and, and, and it's a moribund group that needs to be quiet. It's a great critique of capitalism. It's a great critique of um, social domination, as Baba Cato said, but as far as predicting human behavior and as far as being the way that we need to go and all that is highly, highly lacking and, and, and it's Sad that folks don't see it. We could use aspects of it, like you said, to critique stuff, but you still have to live. The entire no, I'm getting on to that talking. I want to. Um, and then lastly, he says, um, perhaps the lesson that is, perhaps the lesson here is that social victories that count in the long run may be those whose principles are successfully ingrained over time into the very cultural fabric of the lives of ordinary people, a process that sometimes takes an inordinately long time to accomplish. In the case of the African world, social change should social changes should reflect an Africa centered perspective and be wrapped in an Afrocentric framework. Ideologies that do not effectively Africanize their value assumptions appear to have enjoyed brief lifespans within the African cultural world, and Afro-communism is no exception. Unfortunately, uh, it has been around too damn long, and I really wish it would go the way of the dodo bird so that we could move on. So that lifespan um, is still going on. They're, they're on dialysis, you know, and you got to look at it and check them all the time. Uh, it's about to die out, but it's still here. But I really thought this particular quote was powerful because I see it as uh, how reactionization and de-whitenizing has to occur if we want to get this right. 
you ingrain over time into the very cultural fabric of the lives of the ordinary people the values and principles that you want them to have. And yes, that will take a long time, but that end product of that first group will be a core that is damn near made of concrete, that is almost made of steel, of adamantium, of whatever. It's hard. And it's harder to break that down. It's harder to get in there and mess that up. Um, and, again, we you can look at the Jewish people and the Chinese people to see that once you get those values ingrained in them and they've been set for generations after generation after generation, it's a bit harder to just willy-nilly come in and break them down and, and change them. You're going to need a long time to do it. So we were nursed in our cultural incubator for a very, very, very long time, and we have been taken out of that cultural incubator and given someone else's culture for a very short amount of time. But they have also attempted to cut off all knowledge and connection of what we were doing beforehand so now so many of us think that we didn't do anything beforehand and all that they gave us is all that we are. And so that's why it seems like in this short amount of time they have been able to totally break us. But here at Africa's Reascension and other places, we are trying to be the ones to let folks know our cultural cord to Africa has not been completely broken. Actually, it's only been covered up with a white cloth. And we are here to pull that damn cloth off and let you see that you're still connected to Africa on deep, 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 deep levels. And now it's time to reawaken those and bring them from that deep, 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 deep level up to the fore, up to your front, up to right here in your face, and make it applicable to the time that we are in, just like all other cultures. So, now, again, in this, this piece he's walking through applying the Africa-centered perspective. Remember the large, the part two, the large subsection of this was called applying the Africa-centered perspective. And so he he applied it with the um, woman, the gender analysis. He um, attempted to apply it by getting us to look at the um, what the third world really meant. He um, definitely applied it in looking at and critiquing Marxist theory. And so now he brings in two specific historical examples, and he wants to use the two places, obviously, that he knows the best, the United States and South Africa. And he makes some monumental statements in these areas, and that's why I knew I had to do overtime um, so I could get this in.
I'll just read on. We should always distinguish between, one, history as the totality of all past events among people, and two, history as the reconstructed or recalled record by scholars, jealous, he says brios, but we use the proper term, jealous, or other specialists. History in the second sense becomes public memory. And it's then transmitted to the minds of a new generation, and the process repeats itself in a cyclical pattern. This is the history, however, that can be manipulated to distort consciousness, presented in a context of a framework that is unsuitable or information fails to be transmitted altogether. So now, yeah, check this out. The example of the inhabitants, we're on page 39. The example of the inhabitants of the Nile Valley that we call Egyptians is instructive for the failure to transmit information. By 1800, the ordinary people of Kemet, of Egypt, excluding later immigrants such as the Greeks and Arabs, knew nothing. Now, he doesn't. He doesn't say B.C. or A.D., so I'm going to assume he means A.D. here. Um, Excluding later immigrants to Egypt, such as um, Greeks and Arabs, knew little or nothing about the accomplishments of their forebears 4,000 years ago. Now, if he's saying 1800 A.D., that's about 200 years ago, in which case, the ordinary people of Egypt aren't connected to those 4,000 years of history because they've been mostly displaced. Now, he does say excluding the Arabs. And so if we just want to focus on those Africans who stayed African, who are in, in, in Egypt today, then maybe that's what he's talking about. I think that's what he's talking about. Um, he's saying they knew little or nothing about the accomplishments of their forebears 4,000 years ago. They did not even know how to transcribe the hieroglyphs that surrounded them. It took foreigners and scholars from Europe and the Rosetta Stone to unravel the mysteries of the pyramids built by the people of the Nile Valley themselves. Cultural genocide has been that complete and all-embracing in the intervening years. So he's saying that the Africans who were in who were in Egypt, who you know didn't get Arabized, most of them have no had no recollection, no understanding about what their forebears did four thousand years ago. To the point that none of them, as we know, could um, decipher the Medinetta. and it had to be Champollion and and and, and that Rosetta Stone to be able to do it. And so he's given an example of how that aspect of history, which is public memory, can be distorted and manipulated to mess up folks' consciousness. So he continues, there are no guarantees outside of the commitment of a conscious community of scholars of public memory, i.e. historians, 
to make sure that what happens in the 1980s and 1990s will be comprehensively and accurately understood in the 2080s and 2090s. The preservation and transmission of an accurate account about what happens today is always at risk in the future. That gap of history that we have has also let ne'er-the-well black skin, quote-unquote, historians or lecturers, whatever you want to call them, get in and try to inject some other history into our history and pass it off as our history. So, again, if you if that public memory is messed up, other folks will pour stuff in and give you a public memory. And, and again, I, I, I hearken back to falsification of African consciousness by Ennis Wilson. He goes deeply into that as well. But now, I have to get this into the record. This, all of this, page 40 and 41, this is, oh, my God. <laughs> so now he moves into the problem of looking at, he calls it African-American history. You know here we call it stolen African history in America. He looks at the problem of looking at our history through a Eurocentric framework, and this analysis is phenomenal. <laughs> the major problem, this is page 40 and 41, the major problem in African-American history, that's his term, has been the use of an inappropriate Eurocentric framework to interpret what Africans and African-Americans did and what, and, and what was done to them. The trade in physically enslaved Africans was one of the historically was one of the historically significant ways that changed the biological and cultural composition of populations in the Americas. This trade is conventionally referred to as a slave trade. The terms slave and slave trade may appear neutral, but from an Africa-centered perspective, the terms harbor an implicit element of submission to enslavement by Africans and an acceptance of the condition according to a hegemonic Eurocentric framework that that proliferalizes the African experience. These Africans and their progeny supposedly only resist and rebel against their condition of enslavement only after someone outside their culture community informed them of their rights as human beings. Once these people, who ostensibly knew nothing about freedom and human rights, though many were originally free people, were properly motivated by seditious ideas from others, they became unmanageable for a while as they resorted to riots, conspiracies, and revolts. According to this dependency scenario, they had no culture or vision of freedom of their own. Furthermore, quote-unquote, order was restored by lawful authorities 
who put down the rebellion despite the terrible misgivings and the consciousness of some of the authorities about this unfortunate institution that enslaved African people. The constant denial of the Africans' freedom was known euphemistically as the peculiar institution in some publications. In the narrative, some victimizers like Captain Newton can be transformed into saviors and abolitionists while the struggling victims become fanatics but never freedom fighters. Now, there's more, but I just want some of y'all to hearken back to some of the books y'all read if y'all got up to university level in y'all African-American studies classes, if y'all look at Roots and, and, and look at... Um, a lot of the, some of the popular movies to deal with slavery and slave time and the Maafa and stuff like that, you see that narrative read out and played out on the screen over and over and over again. We weren't enslaved after, and I really like the fact that um, Baba Cato uses the term, he even defines it, enslaved Africans versus slaves. And, and I myself, personally, I try to do that all the time in all my writings and when I'm talking um, and, 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 and other places. Because slave gives the connotation that you were tabula rasa on the boat or right when you got off the boat just to be filled with all things American. Slave feeds into fool-ass Skip Gates' notion that we were completely transformed when we was on the boats and crossed the Atlantic, and after we step off, then we're this new being. But enslaved Africans gives you the connotation that we brought our Africanness, our African culture and all that with us. When we were brought over here, we were just enslaved. Now, that was actually the case because Caucasoids sometimes, when they went to the continent, were looking for specific types of people who specialized in certain stuff. If they knew they needed irrigation, if they knew they needed animal husbandry, they would do their research and deal with their colonial anthropologists to find out the groups of people at home who specialized in, the, in Africa, our home who specialized in those areas and went and got them and enslaved them and brought them over here and then used <coughs> those skills over here. So in some aspects, it was just willy-nilly grabbing by Caucasoids, and in other places, they were looking specifically for people who had certain skills, certain trades, certain stuff to bring us over here to then reduplicate those things over here. But in the narrative, we don't get that. We just get slaves, 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 slaves. And I get pissed off that even our folks who write our books use the term slave and throw it around just willy-nilly. No, we were enslaved Africans. I would argue we're still enslaved Africans. And y'all know the term that we use all the time, stolen Africans. That's who we are. That's who we were then, and that's who we are still right now. Let's continue, because it gets deeper. But we turn the historical picture around when we employ an African-centered framework. 
First, this perspective compels us to distinguish between the focus on African Americans and American history, which centers on individual accomplishments within the Eurocentric framework, without reference to what happens to African Americans as a group, and therefore a history of African Americans which can which conceived in an Afrocentric framework. Check this out. It is possible to document progress employing the first focus without significant social improvements according to the second focus. Each of the two foci can be used and yield valid results, but the differing implications of these results should not be confused when we assess the status of African Americans as a group at any point in the unfolding story of America. What he just said in that paragraph was, we think if an individual created an invention, if an individual did something, that that means that the entire group is progressing. And we're still locked in that lockbox today with the idea that because there's a black president, all black people are progressive. And if y'all listen to the show that we did, uh, that I did um, from the ABCI conference, particularly listen to the clip we played from Glenn Ford. Glenn Ford. He broke down some numbers and some statistics that had just come out, basically showing that the Pew people, the Pew poll people, had polled black folks. I think that a few years ago, like right before before Obama got elected, after Obama got elected, on the status of black folks. And then, sort of around the same time, economic numbers came out. The economic numbers on all indicators everywhere showed that we were worse off. In, in the time frame that they had studied um, than before. But when the Pew poll asked black folks how they thought we were doing, because they had a black president, some astronomical number, 80% or something, 60%, something like that, felt that we were doing better economically and socially. But the numbers didn't bear it out. And part of that psychosis, because that's all it can be, psychosis is based on we are still caught up on if the individual has done something, if the individual has contributed to American society in a positive way, then all black folks have progressed. And 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 Bob Cato is letting you know that's uh, fallacious, <laughs> and, 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 and other stuff should let you know that that's fallacious as well. With, with the African-centered perspective, we recognize in principle and at the outset the rights of the enslaved Africans to freedom as a people equally endowed by their creator with the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. There is no need for equivocating statements regarding the historical sentiments of the time about enslavement because such sentiments belong to a Europe-centered perspective of the status of Africans in continental North America. 
If we agree that from our chosen perspective, the enslaved Africans indeed possessed their primary rights to begin with, then when they seek to assert their God-given rights for themselves, for their children, for their parents, we can conceptualize the struggle of Africans as trying to restore in new land a just social order. When they resisted enslavement, even when the prospect of immediate personal freedom appeared unattainable, yeah, that was a weird sentence because he ended it sort of quick. Um, there should have been a, a comma there. They did much more for the demonstration, demonstrating the power of human tenacity and commitment to freedom that is encouraging for all people engaged in struggle for human liberation. So basically he's saying, well, that's pretty clear, I think. <laughs> that's pretty clear. We have always been fighting this beast, and in fighting this beast, it didn't immediately have to do with outsiders coming in. And I hear some folks saying that, oh, we got the Haitian people got wind of the French Revolution and what was going on with the French, and they were spreading the tracks around, and that was their impetus for wanting to be free. That may have played 20% into the process, but we are human beings, damn it. We knew freedom before y'all came and messed with us. And in the messing with us and in the enslavement of us, freedom never left a large segment of our minds. And so in all ways that we fought y'all and fight y'all now, it don't necessarily have to do with what outsiders said. It's got to do more so with our innate want, need of freedom. And freedom defined in our terms, as we spoke on last week. Other folks got different definitions of freedom. Freedom defined on our terms. And so that whole piece I really, 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 really liked and had to get that into the record. Um He continues um, beating that drum. He slaps up um, Fulaz off his Schlesinger and his dumb waste of a tree, disuniting of America. Um, Schlesinger selected the words of J. Hector St. John de Crevore, a Frenchman who immigrated to the American colonies in 1759 at the age of 24 in defining the American, this new man, um, he wrote, there we go, that the poor of Europe, leaving sore affliction and pinching purity behind, are seeking a new life and finding it. <laughs> An Afrocentric framework, Cato continues, will explain that the 30,000-plus enslaved Africans who were brought to South Carolina alone um, and realized that they had lost social status and prestige and came into an American nightmare offered them no hope of future betterment comparable to that of the poor European immigrants who came at a later time, who came at the same time. And so for folks who want to say, oh, we're all on the same ship now and we're all immigrants now, no. Voluntary immigrants 
versus involuntary enslavement is two totally different things, and we shouldn't let folks try to trip us up and put it, make it to be the same thing. In such a historical scenario cast in a hegemonic Eurocentric framework, the ultimate social reality of African Americans is that they become transformed into an enduring problem. In order to solve any of their problems, Africans depend on ideas, help, and assistance from outside their community and certainly outside the culture that they created. Some writers even suggest that the culture of African Americans is deficient and pathogenic and that African-American children should be taken from their families and nurtured either by the military or by middle-class white families. Yes, they have. Some fools have said that. I think even Monaghan said that back in the 60s. Only this way can African-Americans truly be integrated into the American mainstream and stand any chance of a productive human existence in their future. Their African culture has no positive attributes of any kind except those aesthetic gifts that qualify them to be great entertainers or physical prowess that fits them to be gladiators of modern sports. And fool-ass Skip Gates and Knucklehead Cornell West and other folks like that, they fall right in there. They can talk about the jazz. They can talk about music and the blues man and all that sort of stuff, but won't link us the hell back to the continent. They can write whole books. But the starting point, life upon these shores, is 1,500, even though our history goes back two, 300,000 years. But these fools want to keep us just focused on certain stuff. Uh, back to page 43. Since their future lies in becoming like the mainstream, Politically, economically, and especially culturally, the major goal in studying African Americans under the innocuous-sounding race relations project is to identify suitable policy that can transform them from who they are today and in order to, assimil- and in order to assimilate, help them to lose all cultural vestiges of their quote-unquote unfortunate cultural heritage. Perhaps I'll leave it there. Um, denial of a previous African culture is a form of cultural genocide that affirms the aquatic holocaust of a middle passage. African Americans lost their historical relevance of this holocaust since the women and men who were tossed to the sharks and revolted on the ships and committed suicide rather than endure the enslavement, were not kinfolks from the Carolinas and Georgia. Um, Such a half-accurate historical perception easily fuels the flames of self-hatred and confusion. Skip Gates, other people, are y'all hearing this? And this is beautiful. Certainly the ships, this is on page 44, certainly the ships, that loaded enslaved Africans in the port of Goray, excuse me, Goray Island, Lagos, and Cape Coast, unloaded enslaved Africans in Barbados, Kingston, Charleston, Baltimore, Jamestown, Philly, New York, and Salem. Certainly, did y'all catch that? Certainly the ships that loaded enslaved Africans in the port of Goray, Lagos, and Cape Coast, unloaded Enslaved Africans in Barbados, Kingston, 
Charleston, et cetera, et cetera. There is no magical, mystical transformations on the ship that changed us from Africans into Negroes, into this other thing. A whole bunch of stuff did happen to us, so I ain't saying that transformation wasn't happening. But as far as identity, as far as who the creator made us as, as I said in my debate, no man can change that. No human can change that. Consciousness can be altered. Culture can be covered and transformed and, you know, not made prominent. Um, identity can be played around with and confused. But what has been given by Odumakuman cannot be changed by any human. And that last piece ties into, if it wasn't so long, I will put it on a T-shirt. African studies focused on the geographical entity of Africa rather than the movement and development of its people, thus suggesting that Africans who were forcibly brought to the United States and elsewhere stopped being Africans. The claim is a cultural and political stance which rejects the reality of African cultural historical continuity. I love, love, love that quote by Dr. Kwesi Kona dude because it's still going on today. It's still in every book that's been written by mainstream Negroes and almost all white folks that that, that trip across the Atlantic mystically transformed us and there's no need to make the connection because it was a new group that got shipped out of Africa. And we still follow that BS today. And then he moves into um, South African history and how too many Africans and other well-intentioned scholars of Africa effectively imprison themselves in the twilight zone perspective that proliferalizes Africa in that they are educated within the hegemonic system. They don't look outside of it. Then when they start teaching, they just parrot what their Cogazoid masters told them to parrot, and that's happening on the continent today. Um, go ahead and you got three minutes left. I'll go ahead and wind up. Um, there was quite more that I had to say, and I got off on a few changes. But this is a good book if you can get a hold of it. He lays out a lot of good stuff, but he brings it all the time back home. To we need to center ourselves into who we are. In other words, page 57, um, in the beginning, African scholars and writers employed an Africa-centered perspective. But in order to restore a meaningful perspective in the study of peoples of African descent the world over, scholars who wish to study and understand that experience will have to examine closely the insights provided by an African-centered framework and the frame, perspective and the framework it provides. So we started off doing it. We got messed over with by, by, by Caucasoids, and now we don't do it. 
And so we need to get back to doing it so that we can then properly put together um, proper plans and see us the right way and get our um, time triangle properly squared away. Um, There's more, there's a few other points in here, but we're about to run out of time. So, again, I want to thank the callers who hung in with me there. And the Africa Perspective of History by um, Clement T. Cato, K-E-T-O. It was done in 91, so it's probably out of print now. Um, You may have to get it used on, like, A Libris, a Libris books, a Libris dot com or ABE books. Um, I mean, it's fifty nine pages, so don't pay a crazy, crazy amount for it. But it is worth having if you can get it. Um, his centers analysis is great. His breakdown of um, how wrong it is to look at our history from. The European perspective is great. Um, a lot of good stuff was in that book, and I hope we caught it and captured it. So next week we'll be doing a lecture analysis, either of Mama Marimba or of uh, Baba Carruthers. Check it out next week, same time. Abibi Fahodier, Total African Liberation, Yibedi Inconim, We Will Be Victorious. See everyone next week. Madas. The way the system of European control works is that you have to accept a concept of reality which makes them superior. If you deny that, their thing will not work, and they will lose their control.